Welcome to the latest Spotlight on IRT podcast, where our experts talk about best practices in the field of clinical development and innovations to improve today's clinical trials. This podcast is brought to you by Almac Clinical Technologies, the leader in interactive response technology. For more information, visit www.almacgroup.com. And now, here's your host, Matt Lowry. Hello, and welcome to the Spotlight on IRT podcast. I'm Matt Lowry, and today we're going to be discussing design considerations for an IRT system. In my career, I've had the opportunity to see everything from really basic IRT designs to the incredibly complex, and in between a few systems that made me wonder what was actually going on. One of the questions I see asked all the time is, what do we really need? So I decided to take a step back and ask a few experts for help on what type of design considerations we need to look at when building an IRT system. I'm joined today by Abby Peason, Brian Mullen, and Charlene Irwin, who have massive amounts of experience in designing, implementing, and running IRT systems of all different sizes. Thanks for the time today. Where do you start when you start looking at an IRT? Do you start looking at how it should be developed? Where's the best place to really put that information into use? So I think you've got to start off by understanding why you're using an IRT. Um, You could be using it because you've got something particularly complicated about your randomization. It could be because you have got some very high-cost supplies that you're looking to conserve. It could be because you need to control the rate of recruitment. Uh, It could be all of those things, but I think what you really need to do is understand your primary objective for using that piece of software and what it is you're looking to achieve. And once you know that, I think that drives most of the decisions that come downstream for the things that are important, what's essential, what's desirable, and all the other factors. At least that's what I would think. Some people say that you need to have a protocol uh, signed off before we would start any work. That's not always the case. All we would need is an understanding of what the, the key drivers for needing an IRT, an understanding of how the patients are going to be treated what the drug supply looks like to sketch together what the what the IRT system would need to do and, and build uh, a set of requirements around that. So a, a draft protocol? Yes. Now, obviously, when you uh, talk about a draft protocol, it depends on how draft that is. You are going to proceed with a draft protocol and everybody need, all stakeholders need to understand that there's risk of change occurring we have invested time, uh, the, the team has invested time in setting a set of system requirements that are based on something that may change. And if that needs to change, then you've got to expect uh, an impact to the timelines and the budget of the project and how we're going to be able to deliver that. I also think it depends how draft your protocol really is. And this also maps back to what I was saying about the objectives. If you imagine a scenario where you've got something that. Um, a hugely complicated titration algorithm, and your primary objective for using the IRT is to control and to assist the pharmacist with dosing and to make quality decisions. And that's where your complexity is. Obviously, it makes sense in that instance to make sure your protocol in that regard is pretty final because you're going to incur some potentially lengthy and costly rework. But if you don't have constraints or you're not looking to design something like that in, it's just about recruitment and you know how your system's going to randomize and you know they're going to come in, patients going to come in every month, then you know you, you can really start off with a draft like that. So I think it really depends as to what's still in draft and what's likely to change and how much your IRT is expected to map one-to-one to the protocol in those respects because the 
protocol in the IRT can reasonably look different depending on how you plan to use it. Thinking about that and starting to put that information together, who are the users that you should take into account when you design that system? Speaking from your end, where do you see those users coming from? Are they clinical supply people? Are they operations managers? Are they the site managers? There's a few different teams that would be involved. So we have our clinical operations team as well as site staff. So the site could be primary investigators. It could be study nurses. And then we also have a supply chain team that are feeding into the IRT design. Not to forget as well our biostats team and our data management team. Um, and for those studies which have a pro then, the patients will directly be with the IRT system. All right, so really a, a mixed approach, if you will. When you have that, are there any times that you've ever encountered kind of conflicting interests in how that IRT system should function? Sometimes what, what you would, would have is uh, you would kick off a requirements gathering phase. Uh, and there may be key players that are not available in those early stages, and individuals have made decisions or given guidance on how a system should be uh, operating. Maybe it might be more specific to the protocol and what how the protocol is being interpreted. Uh, and then at a later stage in the requirements phase, somebody comes back off uh, vacation or whatever, and it then be, then it gets changed because there's somebody else's opinion has come out has, uh, into the forum and uh, has changed how we need to design the system and that can be quite um, quite a difficult time for the for the for all stakeholders because you're maybe coming up close to the the end of that phase and then you've got to do quite a bit of rework to design uh, in order to still meet the timelines I think one of the areas where I've seen that happen frequently is between the um, the clinical supplies management and the clinical operations team. Um, obviously, the clinical supplies organization are trying to ensure that the kit design that they come up with is you know, practical and is able to be produced and packaged and distributed accordingly with as, min as little wastage as possible, whereas the clinical team are looking at those kits from a very different lens as a facilitator for the patient and very much focused around the patient's needs. So trying to make sure that you've got the clinical and the supplies from the outset Talking to each other and talking with us is really important. I've seen a number of misaligned strategies over the years that, as Brian mentioned, can be very costly to rectify and can start to uh, impact your recruitment plans for your clinical trial if they're not pushed out quickly. Absolutely, and to add another layer to that, um, the data management team may have already built their database um, to meet the requirements of the protocol. So the IRT needs to be built in alignment with the database so that we can collect and send them data as required. If that doesn't happen, then either the IRT needs to be amended or the database needs to be amended. It's about coordinating those type of exchanges and coordinating the teams. I heard you say that this has caused a lot of rework in the past. Any tips that you could give to our listeners about how to avoid that? Is it come down to that requirements gathering when we first sit down all together, or should that really be planned out well ahead of before ever sitting down with the IRT system people? I would suggest it should happen as early as possible, but certainly the most the best designs that we have had to date, all of the key stakeholders have been in touch within direct the requirements. So we're not saying that the management team has to be included in each of the meetings, but they should attend at regular points of time to touch base and see if the IRT design is following what they were expecting. So it really sounds to me like um, identifying the correct stakeholders before the kickoff meeting so that they can agree with the IRT vendor what commitment is needed from them at what time point, and the client team can agree 
who's responsible and accountable for different areas of the system, so that there's really clear engagement from the right people and clear chain of command and decision making such that we reach decisions quickly and efficiently. Yeah, one other one other thing you might want to consider is if you have a program of uh, of trials that introduce maybe something that's a little bit different from the norm. It might be a very tight supply chain, such as a you know shelf life of a product is radioactive drug, or it could be a biological drug that maybe only has a shelf life of less than a week or two. Then you will go. You've got to really think about how your IRT is going to be built early on in that program. So before you design your study, you want to be able to reach out to your IRT providers for any sort of guidance in terms of how that system might be built. How do we maintain the blind in those sorts of instances if they are double blind studies? How best to ensure that the drug requests are getting out uh, distribution vendors? As well as working with the IRT provider, you would also need to work with your uh, distribution vendor as well to understand how you can ensure that that short, short shelf life product gets out to the, the sites on time. You have a short shelf life. From my experience, the IRT does a lot more than it did five, six, ten years ago. Previously, we'd see an IRT system. You'd come in, you'd screen a patient, you'd randomize them, you'd dispense drug. But now there's a lot of imports. There's a lot of exports. There's a titration, as you talked about earlier, dosing decisions, other things that are being stored in there. How does that play into this grand scheme of an IRT? How does that really work out when you're designing one to have these type of dosing decisions? Well, I've been working in the space of IRT for almost longer than I want to say a very long time, and you're right, Matt. They look very different these days. It would seem to me that sponsors are trying to get the IRT to work a little harder. That could be around reducing overage. It could be around protocol compliance. It could be about facilitating um, whatever's needed for the patients. Maybe it's thought that patients need to move sites at certain seasonal points. So we are finding there's a, there's a lot more complexity being built into the IRT, and it's being expected to rise to all these challenges. It does make it difficult because it will mean that there are potentially multiple objectives with using the IRT and lots of must-have scenarios. It must be able to do this. It must be able to do this. In terms of the dosing and compliance, we're seeing a lot more of things like toxicity checks, um, scenarios whereby the dose can be captured or, or, or figured out by the IRT and then overridden by investigators for whatever reason. So there's a huge amount of complexity in there. And it's all very welcome where it adds value. I think the challenge is really where it doesn't add value, where it adds complexity for complexity's sake, that may not be in the best interest of the study in terms of the risk, the timeline, or the cost. We do see a lot of a lot more complexity in protocol design nowadays mm-hmm. because obviously sponsors are trying to get the drug to the market that bit quicker. They maybe aren't sure, for instance, in oncology, what uh, indications they are trying to target. They may want to target a number of different indications. And as they go through that trial and monitor data, they then say they really want to change, shift the focus of the trial to a different indication. They need an IRT that allows them to be flexible. So we need to build flexibility into the into the system to support that. And, and basically build it so that things can be added in that you don't know about in the future, which is a challenge, but it's an interesting challenge, I, I find. Something that we're having to do on a lot more trials nowadays.
I think it's important to note that the ART is a black and white coding system. Mm. It can't apply knowledge learning. So as the study progresses, particularly for titration studies, where the ART is to make a recommendation based on some demographics of the subject, it's difficult for the system, or the system can't account for investigator judgment or their discretion. So the system would, for example, maintain the dose, but based on investigator decision, they require to reduce the dose. And that type of logic can't be replicated in the IRP, so we would just be a recommendation system, as opposed to the final decision being made by the investigator. But then the onus is always on the investigator, that while the IRT would recommend the dose, the final judgment call is with the investigator, and they need to then be able to overrule the system in some method. Well, thanks. When we talk about kind of those different methods, we have seen more cohorts, strata, comparators being introduced. Is there really a limit to how many of those different arms of the treatment should be incorporated into an IRT? Oh, <laughs> and therein lies the complexity, Matt. I don't think there's a limit. If it's adding value, if it's helping the patient, if it's helping speed up the clinical trial, if it's helping get, uh, deliver medications to patients, then a limit, no. But I think um, good judgment needs to be used uh, to ensure that you're building in features into your IRT that actually add value and don't replicate work that's being done elsewhere. Um, in terms of cohorts, invariably we see those being built in because often they're about dose finding, there's a requirement to control patients on a global study. And so building that into the IRT often makes a lot of sense. But the extension of that is not just the cohorts, it's then saying, well, we need to build in blank cohorts such that at a certain point we can add another group of an unspecified size, an unspecified dose group, receiving an unspecified treatment uh, arm and kit type. So I think all of those things make total sense. But for example, building on in all this unspecified work, if you don't already plan to do that and your protocol may be a step too far. I don't know, Charlene, what's your experience of comparators? There's a lot of that being built in at the moment. I see quite a lot of designs coming in where um, the comparators are being built in or some of them being locally sourced from different sites across the world, and we're being asked to respond to that and build that into the IRT. Yeah, it's having that knowledge at the forceps that some of these comparators may be locally sourced so that the IRT is built in such a manner that it knows not to dispense those supplies to the subjects and not to be able to perform site treatments of those. Um, the system should be built in a flexible manner that while you would expect certain countries to locally source their supplies, we need some ability to keep the system flexible that other countries that may struggle further down the line with sourcing those supplies from a depot would be able to switch to locally source. So if you build your system in such a way that it is flexible enough to accommodate that, that will future-proof it for you. Okay. So what I've heard so far is you don't really need a final protocol, but you should have a good idea of what the system wants if you want to avoid that rework. We want to make sure we have all the right people in the room, so to speak, when we do these requirements gathering type of meetings so everyone's voice is heard and their needs are met, and that the IRT system needs to be flexible. Now, when we talk about flexibility, does that mean that we're customizing the IRT system, or are we looking to take our protocol and fit it into an existing IRT? That's um, something that typically doesn't happen. 
pretty much every IRT needs to be customized. Even those studies that are simple, standard I, standard ra screen randomization with subsequent drug assignment. The IRT provider should be able to customize to meet whatever complex needs are, are being provided by protocol. However, the IRT provider should also be able to provide options that look at trying to simplify that design in some way, shape, or form through, through the IRT design. For instance, you might have complex drug assignment, um, calculations to be carried out, and algorithms to be carried out to determine the dose that should be assigned to the patient. It may, on occasion, if you want to be able to mitigate the, the cost element and the timeline element, that you build something that's a little bit more straightforward. They invest forward where the investigator or the pharmacist carries out that calculation and just asks ask the IRT to provide the quantity of drug to be assigned. But then that may not meet the, the need of the, of the protocol. So we need to build in the, the, the complex algorithms that would be required at that point. Um, so it's all about understanding what the constraints are, what the risks are, and building a system that mitigates those risks or building processes around that. Yeah, I think there's no doubt the protocol comes first. The protocol and the objective of the clinical trial is much bigger than the IRT software, and we're meant to be there to facilitate it, not to control or change it or only impact it in a very limited way. And you need it to fit your trial, but is there such a thing as too much customization? Is there such a thing as over-customizing just for the sake of making it fit your terminology? Yeah, there definitely is. I think we've seen a number of studies over the years where um, the degree of customization, it almost wanted to make the IRT do checks and balances on absolutely everything, despite them already being those checks and balances already existing in an ART. EDC. An EDC, or yeah, I've lost my mind then. Yeah, in an EDC system or somewhere else. It's almost like, you know, adding in additional checks and balances and putting on all the bells and whistles despite there being those checks already out there. Um, and I would argue that's perhaps a step too far. You're adding additional layers without necessarily achieving additional value. Or adding functionality in just in case it happens. And experience says that this scenario is, un, is highly unlikely to happen in the study. Mm -hmm. So building functionality and to support that is probably not the most efficient way to support that. You want to talk about how you're going to maintain that system in those instances where something happens that's completely outside of the norm. Do we need to be able to allow an investigator or a monitor or a study manager to go in and change something to allow that patient's transaction to go through? Or do they need to come and speak to their IRT provider for some level of support and technical support that allows that, that transaction to go through? And I think that's the keynote that you hit on around the maintenance of the study. So I know we've been speaking about the initial design of the study. Um, if you build a complex study, you have to understand what is this going to look like in the maintenance phase and in the, in the, if you need to amend it at a later point. So even if you have a very simple amendment to your complex system, it means that whole amendment is still complex. It still adds more risk, it adds cost, and it adds timelines, even if it is a simple change. So do consider when you're building the ART, the initial customization, but then also in the maintenance phase, if you need to change that study, how easy is it going to be? And that's really important because we see more and more 
changes coming through as protocols are changing and adapting to what they're finding with the patients and the drug, then we're seeing so many more amendments going through and protocol redesigns that amendments have become such a big piece of it. So it used to be the case that you could build it once and uh, not, it would be unusual to have to revisit the design, whereas these days it's quite normal to come back to it a number of times based on other factors that are changing as things are being learned. That's a great point. When we talk about amendments, what type of design considerations need to be taken there? Is it different from the initial build? Are there other things that should really be taken into account? I think it's making sure you have an understanding of the impact to what changes you're making. So not only to the IRP, but to some of the components that we would bolt on. So is the changes that you're making within the modules, for example, will they impact drug management on the study? Will they impact the imports, the exports, or the web reports? So it's looking at the whole build to understand what you're changing, what the knock-on effect will be, and making sure that you address those. You've always got to think about the design holistically. What are the side effects of making a change here? What other part of the what other part of the system, what other piece of functionality needs to be considered? That's something that's very um that can be difficult to uh ascertain um if you don't know the design of the system to start off with. So it's it's, it's familiarity of the design of that system and of the protocol design and then understanding if I make a change to the how this drug is designed, what other features or what other pieces of functionality within the within the system also need to be updated to accommodate that. And it's always very important that that's what has covered through the risk analysis and the impact analysis and, and also and the, the, the testing and the user acceptance. Between the three of you, there's there's really been hundreds of IRT studies that you've worked on. Is there anything that you should never customize, that you should never really touch, whether it's in an initial release of a system or even an amendment? Oh, yeah, there's hundreds between us, maybe even thousands. There, there's, I, I think the answer to that is no. There would be caution to be had on many instances as to how, you know, whether you should customize or why you shouldn't customize. Um, the only reason you shouldn't customize is it is to uh, reduce cost, reduce risk, reduce timelines. Essentially, anything is possible as long as you've got enough time and enough money to do it. But is it necessary? That's really what it comes down to. Is it necessary? Do we need to customize this to support the protocol? Or is it a nice to have because the study manager wants to have site into, into a specific area? Or the supply manager needs to have much more granular control of how the drug is going out to the patients or out to the sites? So those areas are, are something that needs to be discussed and consulted on by the by the consultant within the IRT provider as to what's the best design for that uh, study. So adding complexity just adds risk and adds cost. So it's about mitigating against that. I've been sat here quietly trying to think. I've never been asked before, Matt, if there's anywhere we shouldn't customise. And I've come up with two potentially related, and it's just because of the regulatory constraints. Most likely, the IRT is only going to butt up against something like 21 CFR Part 11 with the user IDs and passwords. And I have once been asked whether we could create generic user accounts for individuals to perform uh, pharmacy-based you know, dosing creation, and they, they wanted to share passwords in order to facilitate the uh, pharmaceutical setting. And that, that's understandable, but there's a regulation there. 
um, in terms of the traceability. So that certainly wasn't recommended. The other one where I had um, a conversation with the MHRA some years ago was actually around unblinding. And specifically, the customization that was being discussed at the time was a, shall we say, another step put in the unblinding transaction, which was really forcing the end user, which could be the doctor in a hospital, potentially in an emergency setting, it was forcing them to go through a different loop and apply to the sponsor company to get approval to unblind and enter a, a unique code in order to facilitate it. And I just recalled the sort of the view, the regulatory viewpoint on that is unblinding there and available and that people should be able to use it quickly and efficiently uh, rather than having these extra hoops to go through uh, because the safety of the patient comes first. So that's what I was pondering while Brian was speaking, and that's the only two areas where I think because the regulations sit in those areas, the sponsor company should be fully advised as to the regulations and get some internal perspective from perhaps their QA department before they would ever touch either of those two areas. Excellent. And when we talk about unblinding, I mean, that's so critical on a clinical trial. Do you need unblinded personnel on the IRT, or is it better to just go with no one's unblinded in the IRT, everyone's blinded, protected that way? I think the first stance should always be to treat everyone as blinded and build the system in a blinded manner. There is a need for some unblinded parties to be involved in the design. So, for example, if we we required a randomization on it and the block size was, was known to the statistician, um, or if the IRT provider was creating the randomization list, there still needs to be some form of discussion held between the sponsor statistician and our own team to understand what that randomization list is going to look like. And block size is one of the elements or parameters that some sponsor teams would see as unblinding. It becomes very difficult to build a study whenever you don't have anyone that's truly unblinded, at least in the requirements phase. Now, when the study moves into the maintenance phase, those statisticians will be blinded and we would not share any unblinded detail with them. However, if you get into, during the maintenance phase, if you get into periods of uh, constrained supply, patients not being supplied drug because there's insufficient product at the time, then it certainly helps to have somebody within the drug supply side at the client end to be able to talk openly regarding, you know, where where the shortages are, why the drug is not at the site, and then you can work collaboratively together to be able to put together a plan. If there's nobody there within the client team that can uh, support that discussion, it just hampers that, that resolution somewhat. How do you design around that then when there is no one there? How do you incorporate that? I think it's just you build it from the from being blinded. I think it's really hard. It, yeah. Often the biggest impact, it's okay to design an IRT from a blinded stance and then assume that no one's going to be unblinded. But I think the real impact comes, as Brian was saying, in the maintenance phase. Um, you need a supplies manager who can respond to where they see the supplies going, change the strategies, look at available supplies, organize pack label distribution campaigns accordingly. And without that, it just potentially prevents you from making the most efficient use of your supplies or ensuring there's continuity of supplies right the way through. So I just think things become more difficult and you're more likely to hit a crisis point whereby you have to do something like delay patient visits or put an emergency uh, production run through because you don't have someone that's looking at all of the factors in real time and able to make reasonable judgments and change strategies. So to me, 
it, the impact is most keenly felt in the maintenance phase over the initial design phase. There are ways around the initial design using unrelated personnel to provide answers to questions, albeit it may not be the most efficient and expedient way of going about it. I think you can cover it off in the initial design, but in the maintenance, it's a real challenge. I think particularly if we look at the patient level, so we've spoken about the supply chain and needing to be able to be unblinded to supply and understand what's supplied and what's needed. Uh, often there are misspecified personnel, that means that a patient gets, and the first question from the clinical team is, has this patient been cross-treated? And that's not, not something that the IRT vendor can give information to in a, to a blinded personnel. So while we can share some detail, we can't share whether the patient's been cross-treated in case that creates best or in blinded site. So that's where we would have a preference speak to a non-blinded user and that they can discuss openly whether the patient's been cross-treated and then they can work within the sponsor team as to how to board and accommodate that patient going forward. We've talked a little bit about resupply a couple times. When it comes to resupply type strategies in an IRT system, what's some pointers or advice you could give to our listeners about how you design around tight drug supplies? <laughs> I think if we had the perfect answer to this, none of us would need to be working, would we? Yeah. Um, so it all comes down to the, the, at the type of study that you've got. Is there titration in it? Are there multiple different kit types that can be utilized to, uh, to, to treat a patient? So say, for instance, they might be on 500 milligram dose and you've got a 100 milligram kit and a 500 milligram kit, do we need to put in priority based shipping and and dosing in the system? So you want to give them a 500 milligram vial, but uh, there's no one that's available, but we have got five 100s available. So you want to be able to build that functionality into the system. The other option is our uh, inventory, the inventory specialist within the IRT provider might want to work closely with the supply manager in closely managing the strategies that they're going to put into into play in the system, closely managing the reports, uh, monitoring the alerts and so on, and then reacting as they need to or proactively if they're using the reports looking at that. I think one of the things that uh, it sort of leads into alerts and reports there, I would always be very encourage users to, to look at the reports and, and see that they're uh, what the what the inventory levels are and, and be able to react appropriately there instead of waiting for the alerts to say that there's you know drug that's expiring or the low inventory at site or at the depot because then it's too late to do anything you may already have patients due in in the next day or two and not have time to get drug to site so it's about managing the the inventory levels through use of the IRT system and the reports and the alerts within it, but also in the early stages, if you if you know that there's going to be tight supply, then we need to discuss how best to customize the the drug ordering in the system to support that. And I think some of the things you want to think about when you're talking about if you do have tight supply and what you need to do with it is you need to be thinking about how far in advance you can reasonably project for a patient, are they going to change doses, how far in advance the expiry dates are valid for. Um, also, when you're thinking about designing a study in the first instance, you know you, you may plan to assign three months' worth of medication, but you may also want to design a system that can assign just one month and that additional kits can be sent either direct to patient or other clinic visits to get the remainder of the kits then. And of course, Strategy for sites is always a balance between 
the availability of supplies, the cost of shipping them, the storage ability of supplies, the shipment, um, the physical shipment costs, and also the approval and the shipment timeframe that it's going to take. Because some sites take drug a long time to get there, and other sites it's literally an overnight courier. So I think all of those factors need to be taken into account at the beginning when you design the IRT. And then if you run into a scenario when you have less supplies than you would like, let's say, you can play with those factors. If you build a strategy where you can make it infinitely flexible and respond, and ideally with an unblinded supplies manager doing that at the helm, you can tweak all of those parameters just to optimize based on where you find yourself. Should you take into the design consideration for an IRT system then, using an ERP-style system, working with a, a depot or whoever is doing the clinical drug supply? So you're talking about sending messages between the IRT to an ERP system that allows um, forecasting to to occur. So forecasting, uh, data exchanges, any of those things that can help really drive from the IRT system. Is that a design consideration? Yeah, I would certainly say it is. It, will, it certainly helps in terms of planning. If you think about the information that the IRT knows, it knows what patients it's got, what the future demand might be, and at what time point that demand will be real. In other words, when the patient visits are going to be. And off of that, you can roll that up and start to look at it in the at the forecast level for, and that forecast can deal with releasing supplies. You can also take it back a stage and start to look at producing kits and then roll it back again when you start to look at a bill of materials. So you can start to think about when you need your raw product to come in so that you can um, be producing and labeling and releasing those kits in time based on demand that's being driven in the IRP. And so using that data and exchanging that data between an ERP system and the IRT can become really powerful. It stops you bumping into emergency situations without knowing. And if you plan that in at the beginning, it can be really efficient for um, a supplies vendor as well, just to plan their resource and their availability. And the same for Comparator. We sort of mentioned Comparator earlier. But of course, they can be very difficult sometimes to come by and the supply chain is not always terribly assured. So that information is particularly valuable when you're talking comparators about the burn rate and when you're going to run out of those. I think if you know up front that your supply is going to be low and it's going to be difficult to source the drug, one of the simple approaches is to have an unblinded site pharmacist. Because typically what we see whenever you have low supply is that the shipments are small and frequent and they could easily be tied to a patient because they're replacing like for like kits that patients have used. So by having the opportunity to send those that drug along with the drug order forms to the unblinded site personnel, then that removes the risk of the unblind or the bias. Just with a reminder to strip that type of detail out of the web report that any blinded users can't see shipments being tied with kits being tied with patients. One of the things that I heard earlier was alerts. Having alerts go out when drug supply is low, having alerts on the system. When you have those alerts, what are some of the considerations that you have to take into account? And is there such a thing as too many alerts? So a typical IRT system has an excess of 40 alerts out of the box before you add in all the custom alerts that might be needed being driven by the protocol, by custom caps that you might put into the system. The risk that you have with alerts is users ignoring them. They have 
maybe uh, you might have a study manager or a CRA that's managing multiple studies and they're getting alerts on a daily basis from all of these studies. They are they get lost and the, the detail gets lost within those. It's about understanding what alerts each user should get and being and not getting every alert just in case. They need to understand where their role is, what alerts they need, uh, and then we then get those set up uh, appropriately. One of the biggest concerns that you have within alerts is unblinding. Insufficient product alert alerts at the site could uh, users bias as to you know what's happening at the site forced randomization alerts. Those types of alerts really need to be considered when designing the system and throughout the throughout the life cycle of this of the study. So when you receive an alert, you don't forward it on to anybody within your own uh, system. So those sorts of things need to be considered. As I said earlier, the users should really be encouraged to run reports and check their dashboards. Uh, rather than relying on the alerts, the alerts should be the last thing that they should have to have to receive before they need to do something. An alert should and another thing as well that you need to consider in alerts is an alert should only tell somebody that something has happened. It shouldn't be used to tell somebody to do something. For instance, some data may be being imported into the IRT that determines whether the patient is eligible for screening or for enrollment or whatever. That data um, may may or may not result in the subject being screen failed, for instance, out of the study. The IRT should not be the person or the source of telling the user not to what to do. It's telling them something has happened, a decision needs to be made, and action should be taken. And that action should be uh, decided upon by the recipient of that alert. I think that's one of the points where we see some failures, though, is that an alert triggers to a recipient and they don't know what to do with it. If we have our standard alerts to say there's a low depot um, infantry alert, then typically the supply chain teams will follow up on that. But when we look at more custom alerts to say, for example, a lab import didn't happen for a patient or it wasn't successful, if the recipient of that alert does not know what to do, then that alert is in fact almost useless. Mm -hmm. So the recipients need to understand when we receive these alerts, is there an action required? And in that point, if we think about import alerts, then does there need to be follow-up with the lab to understand what do we need to do to support this patient to be able to allow the data to be imported? So there does need to be an understanding of the purpose alert of the alert, but what to do whenever it's received. Are you suggesting that the uh, what do I do goes in the alert, or are you suggesting that's more of a training and a management oversight from the sponsor to maybe we assume the alert maybe is going to the CRA? For yeah. me, that would be a, a management oversight that there's an understanding of the alert, and then they work with their CROs or the recipients to say what the expectation is, mm -hmm. because that really sits on them. The IRT will alert them to an issue or um, share information, but that's where it should stop in my mind. Because over the years, I've seen so many issues have arisen because an alert was sent out, but no one knew whose responsibility it was to do what next. You know, you, there's a lot of people involved in a clinical trial, a lot of uh, third parties, and there's a lot of sponsor coordination needed. Um, between the people that they employ directly and the subcontractors, and there's a lot of detail in terms of who 
is to do what, and a lot of situations could have been prevented over the years if it was clearer what was expected. You know, that's a great segue into a topic that I had scribbled down on my notepad here, and that's about sites. We can do all the training we want to do, but there's going to be site performance issues, fact of life in our industry. How do you suggest addressing those types of site performance issues within the IRT? Um, Are there ways to design an IRT system to help the site or to guarantee compliance, if you will? Yeah, so the IRT should have a workflow designed into it that supports the the life cycle of the patient in the trial. For instance, you may have a customized system that requires the site to request a shipment for a patient, then register the cycle, then request the next shipment. They can they should not be able to request the next shipment until they've registered the previous cycle. In older platforms, in older technology with an IRT, there may have been, each of those functions may have been autonomous and as such could be carried out at any time by any user or by a user that has access to that functionality. Whereas now with with more modern technology, more software platforms that allow then to build in a, a, a workflow that stops that from happening. Another area that I think is very important is the user needs to get a response from the system or a reward from the system. By accessing the IRT, they are getting something out of it, i.e. they're getting a kit number that needs to be assigned to a subject, or they're getting information that allows them to make a decision to move forward with that subject. Requesting that users register visits without any drug assignment that doesn't, that's just there to collect data that may be pushed out to an EDC it's it's not a good design because it doesn't reward the user with anything that they get out of it, so then they become deficient in actually carrying out those transactions and they get into uh, issues with uh, data reconciliation further on down the line. And that's it, because to, over, to overcome that where they've missed to record that visit that no data was being exported, then they have to register two visits at the same time, and that comes back to your data integrity that the detail that you hold is from two weeks ago, not from the day that you recorded the transaction. So the question is, how beneficial is that the hole within the IRT system? Is there somewhere else to capture it, like the EDC, and keep the IRT to patient and drug management? Mm-hmm. I think one of the things to recognise is study sites are really busy. Mm-hmm. They have their primary purpose is there to treat their patients, and they're participating in a clinical trial, and whatever we can do to make that easier for them so that they can focus on the patient, which is essentially the most important factor in all of this. Everything we do should be about that and to facilitate that interaction with the patient. And one of the things we can do is make our systems intuitive and easy, not create any doubt about what I do, when I do it, and how I do it, or even anything that's complicated where, you know, if someone requires extensive training to use a system, it's going to be difficult for them when they actually come to use that system to remember how to do it. So it really should be that they can just go, you can just log on and it's easy for them to tell what I need to do for this patient and that it's quick and easy so that they can get back to their primary function. It's a bit like if you go back to the 1990s when you used to be able to buy those stereo systems that had loads of buttons on them mm-hmm. and dials and stuff that just looked, made it look really good but really complicated. Those were the £200 uh, 
uh, stereos, whereas the ones that you were paying thousands of pounds for had one knob on them, and that was it because it was simple to use and it was good quality. That brings you to how you should be designing software systems. You need to make it intuitive for the user. So they only have one or two buttons that they need to click on, take them to where they need to be to carry out what they need to do for that patient at that time, and it should be intuitive. That's incredibly true, actually, because if you think about the, the phone that we all use, it's only got one button, and none of us have been in the training course on how to use it. It's just intuitive and easy, and that's how the IoT should be. One other question that I had is about the phone becoming less and less used anymore. Do you still need to take into consideration design for a phone system versus a web? And what does that look like? I think that question, I would say the vast majority of the time you probably don't need phones. I think the time when you might need to think about it is only if you imagine a critical care setting. We've done a number of critical care studies where a phone call is literally being made while the patient's in the operating theatre, it's being made from the operating theatre to decide whether we're doing procedure X or Y. That's the only time, and that's based on, obviously, logistical constraints in the operating theatre, that's when you know, the modality of the phone is going to win out over the web. But based on, at least my experience, it's web 99.9% .9 of the time. So to add in a phone, it requires a different workflow, it's a different specification process, it's a whole other dialogue, and the sponsor will need to invest time in it, and the IRT provider will need to invest time and effort in building it. So it may be one of those examples where you're investing time and you're not actually going to use it. The only time I would be ever on the fence is about the need to perform some kind of emergency on blind. And there's a question about whether even that makes sense, whether there's really a place for it, but it can serve as a useful backup in that limited scenario. But with that said, many sponsors hold a backup scenario themselves. There are various partners in the industry who are able to provide that sort of emergency unblind function themselves. There's various sponsor companies who still have uh, keep master lists and records. So it's not always necessary to build it into a phone system, but that would be the one place where I would question whether there's some value, albeit very limited and hopefully never needed. I think with the modern technology, the need for the IVR, the phone, back up in case web is down is not really you know, a valid situation anymore because there's so many different modalities of getting to the web. You don't need to have a hardwired uh, desktop at a desk. You can have your, your iPad or your phone and contact contact the, um, the web application through that. Um, so even if your if the web's down, you should be able to still get it through your 4G or your 3G network, rather than having to rely on going back to your um, standard copper wire phone to, to to have to spend probably two or three times the amount of time carrying out that same transaction. I think uh, also there's been some analysis carried out over over the last few years in, in terms of the use of the phone, and you would expect that the phone might be used in the not first world countries, the ones that maybe you would expect not to have so much broadband connection and so on, but actually it's the US that has the highest volume of phone uh, transactions being carried out, which appears to be based around investigators that just like using phone over the web that have been doing this for the last 20 or more years. They just want to keep carrying on doing that, whereas if you take away that ability to do the phone, 
then they can still use the web. What is the biggest piece of advice that you could give about design considerations? For me, it's pretty simple. It comes down to identifying what your primary and secondary objectives for implementing an IRT system are and staying true to those. I don't mean excluding anything else. I just mean if conserving drug supply or if reducing site complexity or improving protocol compliance, identify what your primary objective is and speak with your IRT vendor and share that objective so that they can make sure they're putting forward solutions that are focusing on that and not any other objectives that may become apparent or wants that may come out through the course of design. I would say always bear in mind what the study's going to look like in the maintenance phase, how easy it will be to use, what your data is going to look like at the end, how easy it will be to maintain. So almost when you're in the design phase, you're, you're sucked into a bubble that you're just focusing on the design, but always think about the maintenance piece and the site choosing it and interacting with it and how it's going to look. Further on to that there, you know, if you're using imports, um, always think about what your backup plan is going to be. So if you if you need information brought into the system from an, from a, another vendor, then what happens if that breaks? What happens if that's not working? Um, how do you ensure that the patient's safety is not compromised in any way? So you need to be considering those situations. And I'd love to hear, are there any examples of a design flaw that you can provide to us, something that you've seen and learned it over time? We've done thousands of studies. I think over overcomplicating a study is the biggest design flaw that I have seen that um, the study does absolutely do what it needs to do but the the amount of customization for it to get to that point has been to the extreme. It could be something as simple as including far too, too much verbiage on screen that the site users have to work through and they want to move quickly through the EI and therefore they just answer the question quickly and move on without reading the verbiage to the point of doing extreme dose calculations which the investigator can override. I think blinded studies where the product cannot be blinded in any way, um, especially if the active drug is sourced from, uh, from the sponsor and the comparator is maybe sourced locally or just provided as saline at the site. Those sorts of studies are very, very difficult to maintain the blind, and the study design should be should be reviewed up front uh, to ensure that you can somehow manage that uh, by you know maybe shipping saline as a as a blinded drug alongside the active um, compound. Great. Well, thank you very much, everyone. I really appreciate it, and I hope that our listeners found this to be quite useful. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. The big message that I take coming out of this conversation today is to keep flexibility when you design your IRT. It really is important to determine what you need and to make sure you have the right people making those decisions. If you're interested in learning more on this topic, head over to Almac Clinical University, where we have a few white papers and other information on these topics and more. If you have questions, you can also submit them there. Thanks for listening, and until next time, I'm Matt Lowry, and this is the Spotlight on IRT Podcast. You've been listening to the Spotlight on IRT Podcast, brought to you by Almac Clinical Technologies. If you have a question for our host or would like to suggest a topic for our next podcast, please visit our podcast page on Almac Clinical University at university.almacgroup.com.